We will now proceed with the book, The Atonement, by Arthur W. Pink. We are proceeding in Chapter 5, The Atonement, Its Nature. And we'll continue as we left off on the other side of the table. Christ was personally exempt from all the consequences of Adam's sin, but efficiently he was subject to them. Personally, he was a divine person assuming a sinless humanity, and had he not come here as head of God's elect, parenthesis, considered as fallen creatures, he had doubtless appeared in a humanity as glorious as that of unfallen atoms. But officially he assumed the likeness of sin's flesh, an expression referring to the effects of which sin was the cause, namely subjects to suffering and mortality, and thus from the moment of his birth. O infinite stoop! O marvel of condescensions, he bore in his body the weight of imputed sin, a body bearing the sad marks of sin, for his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Isaiah 52.14 There is no perceptible difference between his humanity and ours, not because precisely the same flesh had been transmitted to him from Adam, but because, as our sin-bearer, he voluntarily assumed the burden of imputed guilt, which carried with it abasement and degradation, suffering and death. It was officially assumed, not personally inherited. Christ came in the likeness of sin's flesh for sin. Romans 8.3, that is, on account of sin, that is why God sent him. Condemned sin in the flesh, sin is still personified as in Romans 5, 6, 7, and C 5.21 and 6.14 and so forth, the potentate having men in bondage. God condemned sin, speaks of sin as a person judged before the highest tribunal and righteously condemned. In consequence of God's judgment, sin has no farther claim on those over whom he had tyrannized. They are set free. Condemned sin in the flesh means condemned in Christ's humanity as a sinless sin offering. Romans 2.1 5.18, a condemnation freeing his people from condemnation. 8.1, Christ was condemned, visited with penal suffering, because he appeared before God only in the guise of our accursed sins, and this in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, that is, as if we personally had done it. Rightly did Mr. J. Inglis point out, the fact that God sent forth his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin intimates that he entered into the condition of his people, which with all its evils is the consequence of sin. If we find him poor and despised, hungry and thirsty, subject to toil and fatigue, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, not exempt from the fear of death nor from actual mortality, to say nothing of all else that he endured at the hands of Satan and of men, all these are indubitably the consequences of sin, and he could be exposed to them only as he represented sinners. Waymarks, volume 10. A fuller light shines forth from the four Gospels when we perceive that they are not the biography of a private individual, but the history of the surety of God's people. Christ was a representative head of an elect company. From Bethlehem to Calvary, he was their vicarious victim. The appearing of the Son of God on earth was a direct consequence of sin. The Incarnation and the Cross are inseparable. Both were a means to an end, the vindication of divine justice, the expiation of sin, the rendering of meritorious obedience to the law. 
We cannot survey the meanness of his birth, made lower than the angels, the poverty of his condition, his manual occupation, earning his bread by the sweat of his vow, according to the curse upon his people, his temptation by Satan, his privations, the enduring of hunger and thirst and public execution, these, we say, cannot be contemplated without the firm conviction that they were all included in our guilt and related to our punishment. Chapter 6, The Atonement, Its Nature Continued. The particular aspect of the satisfaction of Christ, which is now before us, leads to the very heart of this wondrous theme. It is most important for the honoring of God and the establishing of our souls in the truth that the nature of the atonement should be scripturally and clearly defined. Mistake at this point is fatal. Until we apprehend aright what it was that Christ did, we are not prepared to contemplate the design, the efficacy, the extent, or the fruits and results of it. And still less are we equipped to proclaim and expound it. For these reasons, we must proceed slowly and endeavor to make quite sure of our ground. A great majority of the errors of men upon the atonement are the consequences of an unscriptural conception of the nature of it. We would therefore beg the reader to prayerfully and patiently read and reread what we are writing on this vital phase of our subject, testing all by God's word. In our last chapter, we pointed out that the atoning work of Christ was first a federal one, that there was an official union existing between the mediator and those for whom he mediated, that there is a legal oneness between Christ and his people. Before the foundation of the world, God's elect were chosen in Christ, Ephesians 1.4, promised eternal life, Titus 1.2, and were given grace in him, 2 Timothy 1.9. It was therefore as their covenant head, and because of this as their covenant surety, that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son to transact on their behalf. All that Christ did, and all that he suffered, was as their legal representative. Unless this be firmly grasped as what lies at the very foundation of the redemption sacrifice of Christ, we are certain to err when attempting to interpret its scope and application. Christ and his people together form one mystical person in the refute of God. Second, the atoning work of Christ was a substitutionary one. What Christ did and suffered was not only on the behalf of others, but it was also expressly in the stead of others. True, blessedly true, that his obedience and his sufferings have benefited others, but it needs to be emphatically said and firmly held that his obedience was performed and his sufferings were endured in the actual room of others. Christ took the law place of his people, assumed their liabilities, became their sponsor, and undertook to satisfy divine justice for them. This Christ engaged to do when he accepted the terms of the everlasting covenant. This Christ came to do when he became incarnate. From Bethlehem to Calvary, he is to be regarded as having taken the place of his guilty people, suffering and doing, doing and suffering what the righteous law of God required at their hands. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. Christ's derivation of real humanity through his mother is no unimportant matter. Concerning the atonement for his Paternity as our kinsman redeemer absolutely depends upon the fact that he derived his humanity from the substance of his mother, for without this he would neither possess the natural nor legal union with his people, which must be at the foundation of his representative character. To be our redeemer, his humanity could neither be brought from heaven nor immediately created by God, but derived as ours is from a human mother 
but with this difference, his humanity never existed in Adam's covenant to entail either guilt or taint. He must be within the pale of mankind. Nevertheless, Christ was made under the law not by the condition of creaturehood, but for the ends of suretyship, hence the imputive value of his obedience. Condensed from George Smeaton. The words made under the law need to be carefully defined. Christ became subject to the law by a special divine constitution. He was not born under it as all men are. Their subjection to the law follows upon their being a natural descendant of Adam to whom the law was originally given and his being to them a representative. But Christ was not a natural descendant of Adam, nor was the first Adam a representative of the second Adam, for he was the Lord from heaven. His obligation to the law arises not from his birth, but he was made under it by an appointment peculiar to himself to answer a specific end, be the redemption of sinful men. And therefore, what the law required of them, either in a way of suffering or obedience, he became obliged by this divine constitution to undergo and perform. Parenthesis John Bryan, 1743, The Certain Efficacy of the Death of Christ. Christ was both born and given to the salvation of God, Isaiah 9:6, and that with a view to their salvation. What he did and suffered was for the sake of and in the room of those on whose account he came into the world. Some have sought to evade the vicarious character of his obedience by arguing that as man, Christ was under obligation to keep the law. But this is to deny, if not implicitly, yet explicitly, that he was the Son of God. Great care needs to be exercised at this point. The humanity of Christ as such was impersonal and therefore owed no obedience to the law. The God-man is not two persons in one. He is one person with two natures. As the Son of God, he was a person before he became incarnate. In becoming incarnate, he took to himself humanity, but not a second personality. Therefore, the manhood of Christ, being united to the Son of God, he was not and could not be obligated to obey the law. It was by a divine constitution, by covenant agreement, that he was made under the law with a view to the redemption and justification of God's elect. Now the moment Christ was made under the law, he entered the place occupied by his people, considered as fallen creatures. This alone explains the experience he encountered, the degradation he suffered, the injustice he met with at the hands of men, and the punishment he received from God himself. We harbor the most dishonoring and degrading views of God if we imagine for a moment that he would allow an innocent person to suffer, still less so that he would permit his beloved son to unrighteously suffer at the hands of human wretches. We shall never view aright the manger cradle, the necessity for the flight into Egypt, the laboring at the carpenter's bench, and the having not where to lay his head, the horrible indignities he had endured from his enemies, and the wicked treatment he received from those who passed sentence of death upon him, till we recognize that from Bethlehem to Calvary he was the vicarious victim of his people, that he was bearing their sins and suffering the due rewards of their iniquities. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Psalm 84:11. But as the descendants of fallen Adam, God's people in their unregenerate days did the very verse from walking uprightly. They forsook the way of God's commandments and followed a course of self-will, and that not occasionally, but constantly. In consequence, many good things were withheld from them. Though addressed directly to Israel, the words of Jeremiah 5.25 contain a principle of wide application. 
your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. Therefore, when Christ came here as the sin-bearer of his people, divine justice required that he should be deprived of many good things. As a wanderer from the Father's house, Luke 15:13, man has forfeited all right to so much as an earthly abode, hence we find Christ taking the place of the homeless stranger here. Insomuch as fallen man prefers the world to anything that God sets before him, we find Christ carried down into Egypt, the outstanding symbol of the world in Scripture. And therefore did God say, Out of Egypt have I called my son, Matthew 2.15. In consequence of the fall, God pronounced the following curse upon man. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, Genesis 3.19. Therefore do we find Christ toiling for his, Mark 6.3. Because the elect in their unregenerate days failed to love their neighbors, we find Christ experiencing the hatred of men. Because we have been guilty of gluttony, he was made to hunger. Because we have been intemperate in drinking, he thirsted. Because we have misused our money, he was penniless. Matthew 17:27. Because we have spoken ill of God, he was spoken against. Because we have denied him, he was denied. Not one throb of pain did he feel, not one pang of sorrow did he experience, not one sigh of anguish did he heave, not one tear of grief did he shed for himself. All were for men, all were for us. If not one of his sufferings was personal, it follows that they were all substitutionary, that they were all, of course, included in the matter or substance of his atoning sacrifice. During the whole period of his mortal life, the victim was a slave. At the moment of his birth, the sword of justice was unsheathed against a man who is Jehovah's fellow and returned not to its scabbard till it had been bathed in the blood of Calvary. It may be deemed at variance with this view of the subject that the redemption of man is sometimes in Scripture ascribed simply to the blood of Christ or to his death alone. But such language is not to be understood as limiting the atonement of Christ to the simple act of dying or to those sufferings in which there was an effusion of literal blood. The bloody agony of the garden and the accused, accursed death of the cross were prominent and concluding parts of his sufferings, and by a common figure, so to speak, the completion of his humiliation, without which all that went before must have been in vain, and may have been regarded as having procured salvation in the same way as that last installment of sum which is paid by degrees may be supposed to cancel the debt and procure a discharge. But as when Christ is said to have been obedient unto death, we are to understand the phrase not of a single act, but of the duration of his obedience throughout the whole period of his life, so may it be said that he suffered unto death as expressive of the duration of his sufferings throughout the whole of his earthly course. W. Symington It is in the closing scenes of the days of his flesh that we may the more fully discover Christ occupying the place of his sinful people and receiving from God that which was due them. Even where we beheld him before men, that which transpired is to be read and interpreted in the light of his vicarious position and his complete identification with his guilty people, what took place here on earth was but the visible adumbration of the trial and verdict of the higher court. Take his appearance before Caiaphas and Pilate. 
We venture to say that all the annals of human history will be searched in vain not only for a parallel, but for anything approaching a resemblance. Nevertheless, the deeper meaning of the unprecedented treatment meted out to Christ has been perceived but by few. Here, as almost everywhere else, men have been occupied with the human instead of the divine side of things. Many a writer has marveled at the iniquitous conduct of Israel's high priest and Judah's Roman governor, and has scathingly condemned their unrighteous action, but apparently it never occurred to them to ask, why did God not only suffer but ordain it all? Acts 4, 27, 28. The Romans were renowned for their respect for the law, the equity of their dealings, the generosity with which they treated those whom they conquered. How then is Pilate's unjust treatment of Christ to be accounted for? True, from the human side, he feared that if he resisted the demands of the Jewish leaders, a complaint would be made to Caesar, and then he would probably lose his position. Nevertheless, this still leaves unsolved the deeper and more important question, why should God require his son to be so mocked by submitting to a trial which appears to us worse than a farce, really a travesty of justice? We submit that one consideration alone supplies the key to this mighty problem, and that the twofold relation which Christ sustained personally innocent, officially guilty, in himself, without sin, by virtue of his identification with his people made sin. It was the sinner who was arranged for sentence. He was, parenthesis, judicially reckoned, parenthesis, by God, among the transgressors of Luke 22:37. This applies equally to his trial, his buffetings in the judgment hall, and his actual crucifixion. John 18:8 proves this. If the representative be seized, then those whom he represented must go free. As a substitute of his sinful people, Christ had to be found innocent and yet pronounced guilty. Though personally spotless, divine justice required that he should be dealt with as officially deserving of condemnation. What occurred in Jerusalem was but the visible expression of the great assisi which had been held in heaven. The sentence pronounced by the human judges was but the intimation or announcement of the sentence which had been passed by the divine judge upon the sin-bearer. Christ hid not his face from shame and spitting. Why? Because as guilty criminals, as convicted outlaws, as the vilest of wretches, that is what our sins deserved. When before his accusers he was dumb, making no reply to the charges brought against him, Matthew 26.60, why? Because, though personally innocent, he occupied the place of guilty sinners, therefore there was nothing which he could adduce in extenuation. A marvelous flood of light does this throw upon the gospel narratives. The charge which was laid against Christ as he stood before the Sanhedrin, as brought against those whom he represented, was not false. Guilty of blasphemy against God, each of us most certainly is. Therefore, as the official representative of his sinful people, the Lord Jesus stood silent, putting in no plea to arrest judgment. So true was the accusation against us, there was no need of witness, Matthew 26:65. We say again, the earthly court, dealing with the charge of blasphemy or dishonor done to the name and word of God, and in sentencing to death our surety, was the pronouncement of our, on our sins, much in the same way as a shadow of the sundial registers the movements which are taking place in another sphere. Christ's holy person was there in the room of guilty persons and the human judge, but expressed the verdict of the divine judge. It was the sinner who was arranged for sentence. At the beginning, the judge of all the earth had formally pronounced sentence, Thou shalt surely die. 
and that sentence was now fully and finally executed vicariously on elect sinners. It were an insult to his moral government to suppose for a moment that the inflexibly righteous and ineffable holy God would permit a perfectly innocent and pure man to endure the indignities, the sufferings, and the sentence which Christ received. His own infallible word assures us, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16.7 Ah, it was no innocent person that stood before Caiaphas and Pilate. Instead, it was the sinner who was on trial, there in the person of a sinless and immaculate substitute. The earthly court of judgment was but the foreground. In reality, it was the bearer of a sin making a real appearance before the bar of God. Hence, there could only be one decision possible, and though personally sinless, he was officially guilty, and nothing remained but sentence of condemnation and the prompt execution of it. Thus, may we, and thus should we, admire the overruling providence of God, which caused the lower court on earth to shadow forth so clearly the action of the Supreme Court on high. What we have attempted to bring out above is so little apprehended, yea, is so completely unknown to almost all of our so superficial to the last degree are the pulpit ministrations of the best today that we trust they will bear with our repetitions and even go to the trouble of rereading what has been written. So we say again that there is no possible explanation of that parenthesis seemingly anomalous trial which passed through the due forms of law and order unless we recognize that it was a symbolical representation, yea, a divinely arranged tableau of a spiritual mystery setting forth the altogether unique, because dual, relation which Christ occupied. Thus was Pilate obliged to affirm to absolute innocence of that blessed one who stood before him. Seven times over he declared, I find no fault in him. Nevertheless, he sentenced him to death. Christ was personally innocent, yet as the vicarious victim, as a representative of his criminal people, he was officially guilty. Thus Christ was righteously pronounced personally spotless, but officially condemned to death. That is why God caused his beloved to endure such mockery, ignominy, and suffering. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The passages of Scripture which expressly set forth the vicarious character of Christ's atoning work are so numerous that we can here but make a selection from them. It was predicted that after threescore and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Daniel 9.26 Then, for whom was he cut off? Here the answer of God's Spirit taught people. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53.5. From his own declarations we may cite the following. A son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20.28. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep, John 10.11. From the writings of the apostles, the following may be taken as samples. Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5.6. Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. Enemies of the truth, anxious to repudiate the substitutionary nature of Christ's obedience and death, have pointed out the word, for is not conclusive.
it may signify instead of, or it may also mean only on the behalf of. Thus the soldier dies for or on behalf of his country. The sufficient answer to this is that though in some passages the Greek preposition hooper is used, which also has the same double meaning as our English for, yet there are other passages where the Holy Spirit has employed the term anti, and this cannot signify anything else than instead of. This is the word used in Mark 10.41. This is my body which is given for, parenthesis, anti, in the Greek, you. In the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word anti is used to express the setting of one thing or person over against another. This may be seen by a reference to the following passages where anti is used for the words we place in italic type. God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel in Genesis 4.25. Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and flocks and cattle, Genesis 47.17. Aaron died, and Eli, his son, ministered in the priest's office in his stead, Deuteronomy 10.6. These passages are so clear, and the scope of the preposition is so obvious that comment thereon would be superfluous. The Greek preposition is also used in the New Testament in passages other than where Christ is in view, which define its meaning unequivocally. Take the following instance where anti is the Greek equivalent for the English words placed in italic type. Archelaus reigned in Judea in the room of his father Herod, Matthew 2.22. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Matthew 5.38. If he asked for a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent, Luke 11.11? Recompense no man evil for evil, Romans 12.17. In none of these passages can anti possibly mean on behalf of. No, it has, except in those cases where it is used in the sense of against, as in Antichrist, the uniform significance of instead of. Thus, after a minute excellent examination of the passages where this Greek preposition is found, we are thoroughly satisfied that we are fully warranted in saying with A. A. Hodge, if the Holy Spirit intended us to understand that Christ was strictly substituted in the law place of his people, he could have used no language more exactly adapted to express his meaning. If this were not his meaning, we may well despair of arriving at the understandings of his meaning on the subject through the study of his word in any department of scripture. Though the Greek preposition hooper has the double meaning which our English for possesses, there is no reason for allowing the enemies of truth to wrest from our hands those passages which treat of Christ's atonement where this particular term occurs. That hooper sometimes has the same force as anti, no honest scholar will deny. That we are obliged to understand it as signifying instead of, in many places, may be clearly shown and definitely established by various considerations. Take just one passage. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for, parenthesis hooper, all, Therefore all died, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Revised Version. Here the fact of substitution is plain, since Christ died in the room in place of the all, then the all are legally regarded as having died too. In other words, the vicarious atonement of Christ is reckoned as the personal atonement of the believer. It would be mere nonsense to say if one died for the benefit of all, then all died, 
Should it be asked, why has the Holy Spirit used a somewhat ambiguous hooper in some passages rather than the unequivocal anti? The answer is because Christ not only died in his people's stead, but also for their benefit. Summing up what has been before us, under this second division of the nature of Christ's satisfaction, we would say, the sufferings to which the Lord Jesus was exposed from the hour of his birth until he committed his spirit to the hands of the Father were strictly and definitely vicarious, born as a substitute of his people, not only for their advantage, but actually in their room instead. He came here as their representative and federal head, undertaking and discharging all their obligations, receiving in his spirit the soul and body, all that was due them. He was their ransom, paying their debts. He was their mediator, coming in between God and them, receiving from him and rendering to him whatever was due to and from them. He was their high priest offering for them. He was abased because of our pride. He was made poor to atone for our covetousness. He was hungered because we, in Adam, eat of the forbidden fruit. He thirsted because we have drunken from forbidden fountains. He died because we were dead in sins. Though it be an anticipation of what belongs, strictly speaking, to the latter aspect of our theme, we cannot close this chapter without calling attention to the clear, unescapable, and inexpressible blessed implication of what has been before us. Christ not only died in our stead, he died to secure our salvation. He not only died in our room, he died for our benefit. Because he became poor, we are enriched. Because he was forsaken of God, we are reconciled to God. Because he was stripped of his garments, we are clothed with the robe of his righteousness. He was abased that we might be exalted. He came to earth that we might go to heaven. He became servant that we might be made free. He was troubled that we might be comforted. He was tempted that we might triumph. He was scourged that we might be healed. He was dishonored that we might be glorified. And there is no contingency or uncertainty about it. That his people should reap the benefits of Christ's satisfaction is not made dependent upon their fulfilling any conditions. Repentance and faith were purchased by Christ for everyone for whom he obeyed and suffered. Divine justice requires that Christ shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. The law of God demands that his reward should be bestowed upon all for whom Christ obeyed it. The very righteousness and faithfulness of God insisted that, because the captain of their salvation was made perfect through suffering, he shall bring the many sons to glory. The following poem was written by Tocqueville. Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid, whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest the merits of thy great high priest to speak peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishments from God, since Jesus died for thee. Chapter 7 The Atonement, Its Nature Continued Riley has it been said that the doctrine of the atonement is put in its proper light only when it is regarded as the central truth of Christianity, the great theme of Scripture. The principal object of Revelation was to unfold this unique method of reconciliation by which man, once eliminated from God, might be restored to the right relation 
and even to a better than their previous standing. But the doctrine is simply revealed, or in other words, is taught us by divine authority alone, George Smirton. If it be a fact that the great atonement is the central luminary in the fulfillment of God's truth, it is equally true that the nature of the atonement is the very heart of this vital subject. Therefore, it behooves us to give it our most prayerful and careful consideration. In seeking to set forth the nature of the satisfaction which the Mediator rendered to God on behalf of his people, we have seen, first, that his work was a federal one, that Christ entered this world not as a private individual, but as an official character, as a covenant head of God's elect, as their legal representative. Remarkable does this appear in his first ministerial utterance. In Luke 2.49, we have the first personal word which Scripture records as proceeding from those lips under which grace had been poured. Psalm 45.2 By wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? There he expressed his relation to God, to the one who had sent him. He had come here to do that business of work the father had assigned him. Those words were uttered by him as a boy of twelve. An interval of eighteen years passed before we hear another utterance from him who spake as never man did. The suffered to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3.15 Here he expresses his relation to his people, to those on whose behalf he was sent. The Savior had now come forth from the seclusion of Nazareth and presented himself for baptism at the hands of his forerunner. John is to be regarded as the living expression and culminating point of the law and the prophets, Luke 16:16, 16, 16, who had for long centuries witnessed to the coming of the Messiah, and what's now by their great representative, Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, was to induct Christ into his office, John 1:31. As Christ recognized them, parenthesis, by coming to John, so they, parenthesis, in him their representative, were to authenticate him as the truth of the prophets and the substance of the law's type. At first John demurred, and Christ said, Suffer it to be so now. In the Greek, the now is emphatic. Suffer it in my present state of humiliation as an act suited to my office as substitute. The reason given was, for thus it becometh us, not me personally, but us, Christ, one with those whom he had come to save. There is the federal relationship seen from the beginning. Thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousnesses. Those words are not to be limited to the act of baptism. The language is more general in its scope, though particular in its terms. The words becometh signified, it is not unworthy of the Son of God to stoop so low, for righteousness requires it. His language intimated, it is suitable that I should appear in the likeness of sin's flesh, identifying myself with them and confessing their sins, Mark 1.5. It was becoming that he should be immersed in that river which spake of death, Jeremiah 12.5, at the very outset of his public ministry, for it symbolized that baptism of suffering which he would undergo, Luke 12.50, and showed his willingness to endure it. Passing beneath the waters of Jordan was a fitting emblem of all those waves and billows, Psalms 42.7, of God's wrath which would shortly break over him. 
it was meet that he should fulfill all righteousness, submit to all that the law had foreshadowed and the prophets predicted, and thus meet all the demands of God upon his people. Second, we have seen that the satisfaction which Christ rendered unto God was a vicarious one. Now, as the substitute of his people, the law exacted two things from Christ. First, that he should render that obedience which was required for them as creatures. Second, that he should endure that penalty which they merited as sinners. Thus, the meditorial work which was given to Christ to perform involved two things, which, though inseparably connected, yet are clearly separable in thought, namely a work of obedience distinguished from the sufferings he bore. In all his obedience he suffered, in all his sufferings he obeyed. Hence it is of first importance to recognize that throughout his earthly course Christ sustained a twofold relation to the law, personally sinless, officially under its curse. The very fact of his putting on the likeness of sin's flesh, Romans 8.3, evidences that sin had been transferred to him from the moment he was conceived in the virgin's womb. Nevertheless, he who bore sin all through the days of his flesh was also the sinless doer of a divine work. The very sinlessness of Christ was the necessary basis of his work of sin-bearing, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He must be innocent to stand for the guilty. He must be holy to take the place of the unholy. Otherwise, he too had needed a Savior. It was the just who suffered for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. Thus, the wondrous life of Christ was far more than a spectacle to be gazed at in admiration and more than an example for his people to follow, 1 Peter 2.21. It must be regarded as the work of one for the many. Unique, glorious, perfect was his lovely life. I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me, John 5.30, sets forth the guiding principle which ever regulated him, John 4.34. I do always those things that please him, John 8.29. His was a life of constant service to God, uninterrupted in duration, perfect in degree, flawless in its balance. One grace neither excluded nor marred another, all was there, all was perfectly blended. Such a life, such obedience, such service merited reward and is actually bestowed on all he represented, all whose substitute he was. We are now ready to contemplate, number three, it was a penal work. Scripture plainly teaches that God is both holy and righteous and that justice and judgment, parenthesis, not love and pity, are the establishment of God's throne. Psalm 89:14. Thus there is love that in the divine essence which abhors sin for its intrinsic sinfulness, both in its respects of pollution and in its aspects of guilt. The perfections of God are therefore displayed both by forbidding and punishing the same. He has pledged himself that the soul that sinneth it shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. Therefore, in order for a full satisfaction to be rendered unto God, sin must be punished and a penalty of the law must be enforced. Consequently, as Savior of his church, Christ had to vicariously suffer the infliction of the law's curse. What we shall now seek to show is that the sufferings and death of Christ were a satisfaction to divine justice on behalf of the sins of his people. In case any should object against our use of the term satisfaction, let us point out that this very word is found in our English Bibles, being given by the translators as the equivalent for the Hebrew word which is ordinarily rendered atonement. 
Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer which is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And ye shall take no satisfaction for him that has fled to the city of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the priest. Numbers 35, 31-32 The deep humiliation to which the Son of God was subjected in taking upon him the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of sin's flesh was a judicial infliction imposed upon him by the Father, yet voluntarily submitted to by himself. The very purpose of his humiliation, his obedience, his suffering, makes them penal, for they were unto the satisfying of the claims of God's law upon his people. In being made under the law, Galatians 4.4, 4, Christ became subject to all that the law enjoins. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it has saith to them who are under the law, Romans 3.19, which means the law calls for the fulfillment of its terms. Christ in our room instead did both by doing and suffering satisfy divine justice, both the legislator and the retributive and the vindictive in the most perfect manner, fulfilling all the righteousness of the law which the law otherwise required of us in order to impugnity and to our having a right to eternal life. H. Witsus wrote that in 1693. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. The reference here must not be restricted to what Christ endured at the hands of God while he hung upon the cross, nor to all he passed through during that day and preceding night. Be aware of limiting the word of God. Know the entirety of his humiliation is here included. The whole life of Christ was one of sufferings, therefore he was designated the man of sorrows, not simply sorrow. From his birth to his death, suffering and sorrow marked him as their legitimate victim. While yet an infant, he was driven into exile to escape the fury of those who sought his life. That was but the prophetic forerunner of his whole earthly course. The cup of woe put to his lips of Bethlehem was never removed till he drained its bitter dregs at Calvary. Every variety of suffering was experienced by him. He tasted poverty in its severest rigor. Born in the stable, owning no property on earth, dependent upon the charity of others, Luke 8.3. Oftentimes being worse situated than the inferior orders of creation, Matthew 8.20. He suffered reproach in all its bitterness. The most malignant accusations, the vilest aspersions, the most cutting sarcasm were directed against his person and character. He was taunted with being a glutton, a wine-bibber, a deceiver, a blasphemer, a devil. Therefore do we hear him crying, Reproach hath broken my heart, Psalm 69.20. He experienced temptation in all its malignity. The prince of darkness assailed him with all its ingenuity and power, causing his infernal legions to attack him, coming against him like strong bowls of Bashan, gaping on him with their mouths like ravening and roaring lions, Psalm 22.12.13. Above all, he suffered the wrath of God, so that he was exceeding sorrowful even unto death, Matthew 26:38, in an agony, Luke 22:44, and ultimately, ultimately forsaken of God. What then is the explanation of those unparalleled sufferings? Why was the most perfect obedience followed by the most terrible punishment? Why was unsullied holiness visited with unutterable anguish? David, David declared. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken? Psalms 
Why then was the righteous one abandoned by God? Only one answer is possible. Only one answer fully meets all the facts of the case. Only one answer clears the government of God. In taking the place of offending sinners, Christ became obligated to discharge all their liabilities and thus involved bearing their sins, being charged with their guilt, suffering their punishment. Accordingly, God dealt with him as a representative of his criminal people, inflicting upon him all that their sins merited. As the sin-bearing substitute of his people, Christ was justly exposed to all the dreadful consequences of God's manifested displeasure. Of old, a question was asked, Whoever perished being innocent? Job 4.7 To which we may, without the slightest hesitation, answer, None. God never has and never will smite the innocent. Therefore, before his punitive wrath could fall upon Christ, the sins of his people must first be transferred to him, and this is precisely what Scripture affirms. Remarkably, was this foreshadowed of old in the great type of Israel's annual day of atonement. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions with all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, Leviticus 16.21. So too was it plainly prophesied, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bare the sins of many, Isaiah 53.6 and 12. So also, as it expressly affirmed in the New Testament, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, Hebrews 9.28. Once again, we would point out there is not a hint in these passages that Christ bore the sins of his people only while he was hanging upon the cross. We are aware that many have so affirmed, but in so doing, they have not only been guilty of adding to the word of God, but also of flatly contradicting it. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.